Hello and welcome to The Point of Everything. Today on the show is Stephen Shannon, who wears many guises. You might remember his old band Half Set, who were nominated for the Choice Prize in 2008, but who weren't his first band, as I discover. You might be a fan of Stephen's work as Strands, or with Killian McDonnell as Mount Alaska, or you might not know him at all, but have heard his work as a soundtrack artist. He scored multiple films and TV shows, and indeed, when I visited his home studio in Crumlin this week, he was in the middle of scoring a new crime drama. So he's a busy man, and it sounds like he's very happy to be one. Stephen's got a new album out this Friday, May 19, the first under his own name. It's called Fathoms. This track is the opener on the album. It's called Past Tense. So very basically, in 2021, Stephen received an Arts Council Agility Award to help compose and record with members of the Crash Ensemble on an album that spans the divide between the film composition work and Stephen's more electronic releases such as with Mount Alaska. It's not the first time that he's worked with Crash Ensemble though. We talked with Kate Ellis from Crash last year, TPOE245, if you want to go back and listen to the interview. That was around the album Reactions, which featured a track called One Day, composed by Stephen with a couple members of Crash. This Friday, Stephen Shannon and Crash Ensemble team for a show at the studio in the National Concert Hall as part of the Metronome series that's running there at the moment. The gig, which starts at 8.30, tickets are still available, will feature musicians such as Stephen Shannon on synths and electronics, along with Matthew Nolan on synths and electronics, and then there's Max Greenwood on piano, Mary Barnicut on cello, Kate Ellis on cello, Cor Venus Lunny on violin, Lisa Dowdle on viola, and Maria Ryan on violin. It sounds like it's going to be a great show. That's this Friday, May 19th. Fathoms, the album, is also out on Friday. We'll hear a couple of singles from the album Evergreen and Eot later in the show. But coming up in the chat, we talk a little about a lot of Stephen Shannon's work. As you heard, it's quite extensive, so we only get in a little bit on a lot. We talk about fanzines, on music being more disposable, less regarded, yet ubiquitous now in 2023, and about sticking with making music decades after his first release and not doing music for success. You'll also hear me absolutely mangle a line from LCD Sound Systems, Losing My Edge. The lyric I was trying to reach for, you'll know when you hear it, don't worry. The lyric I was trying to reach for was, I hear that you and your band have sold your guitars and bought turntables. Just know that I didn't quite get there. (laughs) 
So that's all coming up. Here's Stephen Shannon on The Point of Everything. So do you know what number album this is that you've made? Any well, idea? Um, well, I mean, I've, I suppose I've been involved in like dozens of records in some sort of way over the years. But this is the first album I've released under my own name, um, which is kind of strange because I'm kind of <laughs> kind of older now. But uh, I've released records as Strands, Half Set and just like Mount Alaska more recently. But I mean, I, I, I've been involved in the production, recording and mixing of like literally dozens of albums over the years. But... Um, I suppose the reason why I released this record under my own name is because, like, it's it's a record I wanted to make for a good few years. Um, I'm really, really proud of it. And it's kind of a combination of all the different things I've been doing for the last few years as well. I've been kind of working in soundtracks and working more with string arrangements and string arrangers and uh, just trying to create that kind of cross-section between all the electronic kind of sound I love to make and a string section was something I really wanted to do. The only the only thing that got in the way of me doing it was I, I just didn't have the funding to kind of hire a quartet or a quintet or an ensemble musicians. But luckily, I I applied for and got a, an arts council grant in twenty twenty one, and that enabled me to kind of to work more closely and spend more time with musicians like that and an arranger and develop it more fully. So, the album under your own name does it feel any bit different? at all does that I always wonder like is it you know a big step for a musician who, who's done a lot of stuff and not released under their own name to actually finally put something out well it definitely was a, a, a big choice but I, I I really feel that this record is is much closer to exactly what I want to do and I had to sit down and think about it and talk to a couple of friends about it and stuff and just sort of go what will I do with this and talk to the label obviously as well and say what will I do with this will I, will I release it as another strands record or another pseudonym and I made it. I made a choice to just do it myself under my own name, um, just because I'm so proud of it, and I, I really want to just put my name on it, you know. And do you have more Stephen Shannon work? Um, well, I mean, the way the way I create music is like for my whole adult life, really. I just make music all the time, and I, you know, sometimes on a, on a good week, I'd I don't know, I'd make a piece of music every day or every second day. Uh, but on, on a kind of slow week, maybe I'd do a couple of things. I've always made music. And uh, when it comes to kind of saying I want to make a record or release a record, I just more or less cherry pick what I've worked on and develop those further um, and try and create something cohesive based on all the work I've done. But that cycle, it would happen even if I wasn't releasing music. I think I'd still be making music all the time. In fact, I just know it. That's what I've always done. It's just a habit, you know. It's what I do to relax. It's what I do to enjoy myself. It's, you know, it's something I do. So, I mean, when I go to, to create something, in many ways, it's already created. I just draw it together and give it a theme, you know, and develop it further. What do you mean it's already created? In uh, wh- What I mean is, it like, I, I already have a massive bank of, like, thousands of pieces of music that uh, oh, okay. I just kind of delve into and I, I kind of draw together and, and pull things from and try and create a team from them. Yeah, how, how do you, like, know the cohesive work? Do you have, like, an overarching idea? I generally tend to 
to group things uh, under a theme. So like over a long period of time. So I have a massive bank of, of music that I listen to that I've made and some things I've forgotten the process of making them. I, I don't remember them at all. In fact, I do get the occasional surprise and I have to check to see if I did make them because I, I hear something and I go, oh, that sounds nice. <laughs> I wonder who that is. And it's me. <laughs> like that, that has literally happened a few times. So I have this big bank of, of kind of music and I just kind of, I generally tend to group things into a kind of a space. So the, one one might be kind of ambient, or one might be kind of electronic or orchestral, or um, and I I try to group things together. And then I suppose that kind of narrows over a period of time, and it becomes thematic. It becomes a record uh, almost on its own through me listening to it and just thinking about it. And you can distinguish between each album. Is it genre that distinguishes the albums for you? Uh, yes, but but I mean, what's interesting is I I made like I've made a lot of records on my own. I I made a, a record under the name Strands back in two thousand and ten, and I listen back to that now, and I literally cannot remember the, the what I used, the process of it, what was going on in my head. So it's like revisiting yourself. But you can't remember. I don't remember the process of making it at all. It's just a, again, it's just a, like drawing that thing together drawing drawing the team together and just trying to make it work um and and then moving on but it's lovely to revisit it and listen to it you know uh so the funding came after you had the idea for fathoms what was the start of the idea when when did it begin um i think uh, I, I think back in 2021 um i worked with the crash ensemble they invited me they commissioned a, a piece of music for me and i worked with uh a couple of musicians, Roderick O'Keefe on trombone and Alex Petku on, on xylophone and percussion. And I just made this kind of really simple piece of music um, for that album. And I suppose that's when my formal relationship began with the Crash Ensemble. But I, I was already aware of many of the musicians that kind of worked with nearly all of them. Um, but I mean, I, I was suddenly aware of how great and how talented they all are. And I just really wanted to work with them. Now, I mean, to, to find time and money to develop a record with these people, it, it it's, can be difficult. It's prohibitive in many ways, but I was lucky enough to get an Arts Council grant to work with them. And uh, I was able to develop it and work with an arranger, Mary Barnicott. And so a month, I think the opening track in the record, is just like, I, I kind of created that on my old Juno, my old Roland Juno here. It's a synthesizer from the early 80s. And then I, I asked Mary to kind of expand it out and turn it into a quartet piece. And when when I heard the quartet from the crash performance i was just completely blown away it was just like such an emotional experience for me um so i mean just taking it was like it was like a challenge of taking music that you've worked on and bringing it to a whole other level um it was phenomenal is it a classical album um i i, I wouldn't i wouldn't really call it that i mean i i think it's uh like i, I suppose my uh what I've been really inspired by and what I've been working with for God, nearly 20 years now is kind of electronic music, you know. So as you can see around here, like there's a big collection of synthesizers and stuff. And just, you know, I just love like to relax, for example, I just love to put on what's called an arpeggio. And just a couple of the old synthesizers have a hold function where you can just put on a chord and it'll just loop around the notes. And it's just so so beautiful to listen to so I, I kind of work with electronic music and I'm not very good at scoring or reading or writing music I, I'm okay but um, pretty basic um, so I, I wouldn't dare to call myself a classical composer I'm, I'm a musician a person who writes songs and uh, I was I was lucky enough to have the chance to develop something a little bit further to work with these musicians you know but you are able to like read music and write music for 
crash your four orchestras? Um, or? A little bit, but I, I would say my skills are rather basic in that department. Yeah. I, I can do a little bit. I, I can, you know, I definitely can't read and play, but I can read slowly. Yeah. <laughs> how, how do you do that? Is it just like staring at them online and just like trying to figure them out, like YouTube explainer videos or something? Uh, well, what happened was, um, I, 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 I mean, I was really aware that I needed a bridge from what what their knowledge is and where I'm at. Um, and I worked very closely with an arranger. Her name's Mary Barnicott. And she, if you just played a, a three note chord, for example, she would say, well, you know, she would be able to parse that out to a quartet and, and figure out what needs to be done. And she knows the limitations of those instruments and she knows how to develop notes, whether, you know, like, so it, I did need help doing it. I, I, I kind of to get to that stage, but, uh, but bringing the songs up to a point where I'm happy with them, I kind of did that myself. And then I kind of worked a lot with MIDI and, worked with Mary and sent her the parts and she kind of developed them. So you're happy that it's a very collaborative thing that you are accepting of their ideas and changing yes. their changing of some of your ideas, even though like when you think of it as under your own name, you think like, this is exactly the album that I had in my head, but it yeah. sounds like it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, I think music is, when it's at its best for me anyway, it's always very collaborative. It's always like, it's it's a two-way thing. So if you're sitting working with somebody helping to record the record or mix the record, like your ideas count a little bit as well. And of course, it's their record and they put their name on the end. But I always felt a great joy and satisfaction in bringing something to it. Um, so I think that's how it worked with the Crash Ensemble as well. It's like, I, I was able to work with those musicians and work with that arranger, but... I was very open to what they wanted to suggest or bring to the, to the record, and um, it's it's. I think it's only better for it in the end, you know. Mm. Yeah. Do you want to tell me about the gig that you're playing? Is it this weekend? Yeah. Um. I. I I'm. I'm lucky enough to be able to play in the National Concert Hall this Friday. Um. On the nineteenth. Um. And it's with almost the 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 entire ensemble that played on the record. I, the only person who can make it is Diamanda Leberge Bram, who played violin. She's abroad at the moment, but she's uh, but Cora Venus Loney standing in for her. She's she's amazing. So, um, so I'll have the quartet of the Crash Ensemble. Mary Barnicott, who helped arrange it, she's playing cello as well. So it's a quintet, I suppose. And the brilliant Max Greenwood on piano, um, it's literally my favorite piano player. Um, and Matthew Nolan, a good friend of mine, is playing bass, and I'm there with four or five synths and lots of noodly sounds, doing my thing. And so, have you guys rehearsed? Um, we we have all rehearsed individually, and we're doing a full rehearsal tonight, and we're doing another full rehearsal on the day of the concert. Do you get nervous after like this long? Because it does sound like it's something new for you. Yeah, no, I am. I am nervous, but uh, but also excited. You know, like I I. I I mean, really, like, when when you're lucky enough to go on stage with musicians like this, it's actually really exciting. I can't wait to see what they do. It's really exciting. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I've developed the parts really carefully. In fact, there's a few songs on the record that, that don't have a string arrangement, but rather than have all these brilliant players on stage not doing anything, I've scored up parts for them to play on all the songs. So, they're, like, they're, we are going to be all performing all the time. How long did you actually spend on the album itself? Um, How far back does it stretch? Maybe I, I think it's, it goes back to the beginning of twenty twenty one. Oh, okay. So um, so it came together relatively yeah, quickly. Relatively is, is that quickly, quick for you? It, it is. I mean, I kind of I I at the beginning of twenty twenty one, I I was just I just had this really prolific period of music, and it was the most prolific time in my life, and I don't understand why. But I made two records um, in that time. I made a Strands record that I released two years ago, and 
um, this record and I, I just made them both and uh, but then I, I got really busy with work so I had to park this record for almost a year and then get back to it and I finished it, finished it at the end of 2022 and um, I'm just putting it out now during that time as well I got the money to from the, the Arts Council to record it and pay for the Crash Ensemble and you know it, it took a long time to develop that and just get the finance and work with them so um, there was lots of kind of intermittent periods where I got intensely busy and then I just had to park it and do other work you know Is the funding like an impetus for it or were you always going to come back to it once you had the quiet time to do so? I, it was always a case of I really have to get back to that now and then something else would come up and <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. but it was always at the forefront of my mind to get back to it What's what's the work, the kind of the necessary work that gets in the way? It's is it film scoring? Yeah, I, I do a lot of scoring for film and TV these days, and um, I, I like a lot of those projects when they come up. They often come up with only a short amount of notice, and they're completely and all-consuming while they're on. Like for example, like the TV show I'm doing at the moment has a two-week turnaround per episode uh, for all the music for each episode, so you have to compose like sometimes. Like for, I think for one of the episodes, there's 29 pieces of music, which you have to compose, edit and mix uh, in two weeks. So it's a, it's like a, a, to, to work on some of that, it's like a distillation of every skill I've learned over my career in music. It's just like you have to know how to compose, you have to know how to edit, mix, everything. So so it's completely engaging. So I ended up, I ended up doing long hours. So I, can't, I don't really have time for anything else, <laughs> you know? Yeah. You say that Fathom's 
spans the divide between film scoring and the electronic projects such as Mount Alaska. Do you like there's still elements of that in Fathoms though, is there? Yeah, I think uh I, I, I think I suppose that's kind of nice in a way that there is a kind of a source sound and a commonality between the different projects. I suppose it comes from the same the same brain. So I, I kind of like that I can hear a consistency across like the, the music I'd compose for a film to Mount Alaska to this record. I like that you can kind of see it, hear a thread, you know, um, maybe not everyone will, but I, I can hear that on a lot of the pieces. And I, I kind of like that, you know, mm. um, it, it appeals to me. Um, it's definitely not something I set out to do. It just happens. What you know, the 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 commonality between oh, okay, lots right. of different yeah. So it's not something I set out to do at all. It just kind of comes out that way, I suppose. I don't think I've talked to anybody who actually has scored for film or TV. Like, just going back to the the twenty nine is it twenty nine different scenes that you have to yeah. To score? So it's like it's it's essentially twenty nine pieces of music. Um, so like for that one episode so you know it's like 90 second snippets or just yeah like some of them are very short like it might be just a kind of a a boom or you know a kind of a, a drone or something but some of them are very involved I think uh, I always think having done kind of music for TV and film for a few years now really when you the, when people don't notice what you're doing you're doing a good job I think about 90% of the time you're just going to have to help the drama and then every once in a while you just come forward and you kind of you're in front but and that's when you have to do something distinctive and interesting but a lot of the time you just have to kind of tuck away do something that's good but not too distracting from what's really going on for for the show that you're working on now are you creating new music or are you going back into that vast bank of uh music that you've already got created on your computer <laughs> no it's mostly mostly new music but every once in a while i kind of you know i i really do have to go into the bank <laughs> you know i just i don't have a choice i pull something out and i kind of work it or i hear i, I see a moment in the in the, the film where I, I suddenly get an idea that i could develop something and flesh something out in a different way and it's just a it it, it is really engaging because you know a lot of the time you're just kind of you are being creative you're just working on the fly all the time with with a really heavy deadline so you have to you have to work fast and you're also aware that what you're doing is not the most important thing going on it's important and sometimes it's the most important thing but only occasionally so you just kind of you become a cog in this wheel of a production and i really like that it's like a creative process where you don't have to put something into the world like releasing an album you just get involved in something and give it all your energy and make it as good as possible. I, I find it really engaging. How long have you been doing scores? Um, I suppose, I, I mean, I I was doing it uh, in passing, like, you know, so the occasional project would come up like a, a, a TV series or a drama or a team for a TV show would would kind of tend to come my way for the last maybe nearly 15 years. Oh, wow, 15 years. Yeah, but but I've only been doing it kind of in earnest, I think for about six years now, where like since about 2017 when I got my first feature film, um, this film called The Lodgers. It's kind of like a, an Irish horror movie. And I just fell in love with it. Like it was, but, but again, it's, it's a massive uh, commitment. So everything just kind of slowly moved out of the way so I could do that full time. I'm guessing a horror movie is kind of the dream for someone who loves electronic music, John Carpenter type stuff. I'm guessing. Yeah, it was it was amazing. But like the director, this his name is Brian O'Malley. He was a massive fan of synthesis. I've done a, another TV series with him since. This was a, a kind of a period drama, so we couldn't delve too much into synthesis. <laughs> you know, although I've seen that. I mean, there's a, there's a thing. There's a period drama called The Nick by Steven Soderbergh and. This guy Cliff Martinez did the soundtrack, and it's just pure synthesis, like. But it's it's set in the eighteen hundreds, you know. Um, so it, that is doable, but it didn't suit the aesthetic of this. So we we got 
I got in a couple of like a cellist and a, a couple of other players and we created something and you know a piano and and then of course there's lots of kind of dark moments I mean I really enjoyed working and it was really engaging but I learned so much from it you know um, if I was going to do it again I'd kind of work differently I just I think I did it the hard way the first time and you like the deadline that's set by these projects I mean two weeks for per episode per 30 minutes or per 45 minutes or however yeah. long the current yeah. show is you like the two week turnaround is it ever um, you you send the finished thing back and they're like no 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 oh and, nearly nearly every time there's, oh, there's, okay. always, there's always tweaks yeah there's, I mean uh, there's always changes and tweaks because you do so much for the episode you're, you're, you're almost certainly going to get back notes and things you need to change and sometimes a full change out of a couple of cues and but you know that's kind of part of it. Maybe I'm just a bit of a glutton for punishment, but I love <laughs> I love the challenge of it, you know. And also, I've learned over the years to really just leave my ego at the door and just kind of go, okay, this is what I've come up with. Like, what do we need to do here? And you just kind of work with people creatively, and you accept their changes. I remember there was one point in a TV series I did about four years ago, and I I worked really hard on something, and I spent about three days in the piece. It was just one scene, and I really worked to brief as well. And I got back the next cut of the film and it just wasn't there. And somehow somebody decided that it wasn't working, but forgot to tell me. <laughs> and it's just, it can be really heartbreaking because you spend days on it and you think it's just right. But the way you find out is you just watch the latest cut and you find out that it's not there. And it's just like someone decided it wasn't working. So, but that's why you just have to kind of park that, you know, park any kind of negative feelings you have about it and go, okay, let's just go back to the drawing board here. I actually like that. Yeah. Yeah, so... um I don't mind. It's fine. I love the work, you know. And has there been times when they've just said, look, it's not working. Well, we're going to, going to go a different direction or? Uh, luckily, no. But yeah. that, I, I'm I'm prepared for You're that ready. It could, it could happen, you know. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've heard of it happening. So, um, but normally when you when you work with a director or, or a team, um, you start up a dialogue and, and you figure out what's going to work. And before you play a single note, you, you kind of know what you're going to be doing. And um, that's an important conversation to be having with people instead of giving them a shock with something that you think is working, but they had no idea about at all. So, I mean, it usually starts with a conversation and a shared playlist on Spotify or, you know, just that it generally you just kind of slowly kind of draw to a point before you do anything. OK. Yeah. And it must be interesting just because it's collaborative, but it's very much like you're in the studio away from everything like do you visit the set do you do you meet the director I try to I try yeah. to I, I did a soundtrack for a film called Sunlight um, and that was they began filming that just at the end of the pandemic after the first lockdown ended and everyone was on set and I really wanted to go and just meet everyone involved and and also I always tried to have a coffee or go for lunch with a director and just try and meet face to face obviously you have to do a lot of zoom calls but they're just not the same as we all know yeah I, I do make a point to try and go you know just put a human side to people and I'm, I'm often pleasantly surprised when you meet someone in person you'd see the human side to them and that kind of helps you as you go into this very intense journey with them. <laughs> it does help a lot you know um so this is your main that's your main work then the film scoring and yeah that's and that's pretty much what you know pays the bills yeah yeah that's yeah. that's what i do for a living um i work as a soundtrack artist but uh I feel very lucky. It's, a, I mean, like I said earlier, it's, it's, it's a distillation of everything I've learned over the years through recording and mixing and editing and all kinds of things. And and I, I, I think I, I record far less albums and stuff like that these days. Well, firstly, because I don't have time, but secondly, because I think I just realized that 
I'm more of a, a musician than anything else. So I'm just really happy to kind of make music rather than help others make theirs. You know, I think I'm just happier when I'm there with an instrument in my hand or composing something or editing something that I've made myself. I really enjoy that and I find it really engaging. Um, but I, I think that's so I'm exactly I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing, you know. Ah, great. Could you have seen yourself doing this maybe, say, at the start of Half Set, going back to your is that your first band? Uh, no, I, I was in a few bands before that. I was kind of part of the punk scene in, in the kind of oh. mid '90s in Dublin. But uh, oh, that's, name, that's, name me some bands. Oh, um, well, I was I was playing in a band called Strict Nine DC, and they were a kind of an offshoot of a band called Paranoid Visions. You ever, you ever, I've you heard ever of heard Paranoid that? Visions. Didn't yeah. w- wasn't their label reissued as on a, on record a couple of years I, ago? I think so. Yeah, I think they they re-released something. Yeah, didn't they? yeah, yeah. And but anyway, like uh, there was a couple of guys from that band uh, in Strict Nine, and we were. We were touring and playing all over all over the UK, and um, that was a long time ago now. But you know, some great memories, a great experience, you know. Um, but then on from that, I suppose, like with the likes of the band Half Set and stuff like that. When I set up this studio that we're sitting in now, I mean, the reason why I set it up was to record and mix, and you know, be, be a producer and a mixer and an engineer. And that's kind of changed me over the years. I just be, as I get older, I just want to kind of use it but I'm so glad I built this space it was like another me that made it you know but now it's a space where I work you know um, when did you build it? Uh, it was finished in 2005 wow so, yeah. so almost 20 years yeah 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 it's crazy so and uh, I mean my main motive back then was because I was I was working so much at that point uh, recording and mixing bands and uh, what I was doing then was I'd kind of work with the band I'd hire the studio and then I'd charge my rate as well and I felt really guilty about my rate because Sometimes a studio will be quite expensive to hire for a day. So, you know, everyone's on you know, the music scene, they're notoriously poor. So, like, just feeling feeling really bad about spending more than two or three days in a studio trying to get something right. I would often end up working for free. And I was just going, I can't, I can't go on like this. You know, I can't, I can't just go around working for free, you know. So I built my own studio. I kind of got a bank loan and uh, and built this place so I could kind of just just charge my daily rate to work with them. So it was built almost out of guilt. Of yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was kind of a need because, like you know, I didn't want to be kind of saying this is the fee for the studio and this is my fee for your day, and you know now I'm going to go home and uh, we've only got enough money for two days or something. So <laughs> you know the the record that we're making is going to be compromised because you haven't got enough money. If I was here, I could charge a more modest rate for the whole thing and spend more time on it and make it better, you know. Wow, it's very fair of you. Well, it was. It felt like it was necessary at the time, but I'm so glad I did it, you know, because now I have a space to work in and it's it's, it's like it's purpose built, you know, it's like it's fully soundproofed. Um, I have a live room, you know, it, it's perfect for what I do. So, but getting back to your question, I, I didn't think I'd be doing this full time back then at all like I didn't uh, even this type of music as well I'm guessing no I guess not because I mean I, I, I kind of started out as a guitarist you know I kind of when I was like 14 I just became obsessed with playing guitar and you know I, I, I mean over time I think I, I got my first synthesizer back in the late 90s and that was pretty much the end of that like I just got completely addicted to that sound and thing and just just playing drones and the synth before I could even play keyboards properly and I, I know a few chords and scales now I'm not great but Back then, I was just kind of going, wow, this sounds amazing, you know. Um, I just love the sound of it. It is that line, like, in um, uh, LCD sound system, isn't it? Like, you know, we all got guitars and you got synthesizers. Yeah, 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 exactly like that, yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, I suppose I've become not adept, but reasonably good at playing lots of different instruments over the years, be- out of necessity, you know. 
and um, what I can play I can program on the computer um, or hire in a musician to do but uh, yeah I think I've become fairly fairly okay at everything I do you know <laughs> everything I put my hands on you, you get a pass on everything yeah I think I get a pass just about <laughs> on most things tell me about like the synthesizers what what is it that draws you in more to them because I mean just from what I can see around me there's about six or seven just yeah. in this room I think I own uh, a couple of dozen but like some of them are, some of them are in stores and they, I kind of take but I, because I have so many now I think I just tend to use synthesizers for sounds so I kind of I have a Moog Voyager there and uh, I, I think I just I, I would use that more for bass than anything else and then there's a Korg Poly 6 and a Roland Juno 60 and for the poly six, it would be kind of pads, you know, kind of like chordal pads, like dr- like kind of droney pads, and then the Juno would be kind of like arpeggios. So I tend to kind of go to synthesizers for certain requirements. So, but if I sit down with any one of them, I can kind of do all of that on one of them. But yeah, I I tend to kind of work that way these days because I have to work so quickly a lot of the time. But it doesn't take me very long. I mean, if I started playing one now to show you how it sounded, I'd just get lost in playing it. I just do you know what I mean? I just Yeah, yeah. So I I'd kind of forget you were here almost. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't be answering, I wouldn't hear you properly because I get very engaged with what I'm doing. And did you ever have that with guitars? Like when you were starting playing, were you like, oh my God, this this guitar, I really want this guitar. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think um you know, I, I started playing guitar, it was almost accidental because like I, I had a friend who I was like fourteen and his mother had bought him an electric guitar but I didn't know that and he never mentioned it, but it was underneath a pile of clothes on his floor and I picked it up and I was like, what's this? And it was like, it had one string on it and I was like, what's this? It's amazing. It was a Fender Square, like kind of a copy of a Strat. And he's like, oh yeah, my, my man bought me that a few months ago. Do you want it? And I was, he just gave it to me. And so I learned how to play on a guitar with one string and no amp and I just loved it, you know. And then I bought a set of strings and I just remember the sound of this playing my first chords I was just so hooked, you know. So it was it was pretty much accidental how I ended up kind of forging my way through this, you know. But yeah, I, th- I think I, I never looked back really from that point. I think it's a funny time for music, Dublin in maybe the late 90s, maybe the first couple of years of this century as well. Just say this century, it feels like a lot of the music might have fallen through the cracks pre-internet and stuff like that. But was punk a dominant music in the late 90s like mid to late 90s that's what you were playing was it I think uh, yeah I think at the time the kind of DIY scene was very dominant so I mean everything functioned very differently back then so pre-internet um, you'd be reliant on, on word of mouth much more so fanzines were a really big thing like fan- so you go to a town uh, in the UK or somewhere in Ireland or something like that and there'd be some, some young lad holding a microphone and he says, can I interview for my fancy? And you always did it. And the end result of that was often like he'd go off and make us 200 copies of his fancy in whatever town he's from. And next time you go to play in that town, there's like a few hundred people at your show because they've read about you. And they they and the, we released records and people bought them by mail order. So they'd, they'd send you money. Oh, wow. So uh, with one of the Strickland albums, I remember this clearly, we sold 5,000 albums uh, on mail order. And then we went to tour in the UK and we played a gig in the George Roby in London and there was like hundreds of people there and they were screaming the lyrics back to us like and it was like we were famous but we weren't we were just a little DIY band but it was just like oh my god this is unbelievable like this is incredible like, it's so powerful um so it was a very different scene so it, you know pre-internet it was fanzines and word of mouth it's so much more tangible though isn't it like 
it was exciting. It was really nice. Um, but you know, I mean, you see bands becoming, you see music and and bands becoming very successful. Um, now through, or, or now now through the internet and through you know similar kind of word of mouth, but online. So it's just evolved, I suppose. You yeah, know? I I kind of. I don't know, maybe it's just the pessimist in me, but I saw some people here at uh, The Great Escape, you know, the music showcase at the weekend. Oh, yeah, yeah. They were, I just saw some people talking about, you know, this band has huge streaming numbers, but the yeah. venue is half full for them. Yeah. And I've kind of seen that as well, where it's mm. like, I thought that this act was huge. Yeah. I, I, but it, but it's one song. Yeah, I, I, I know. And, you know, I, I asked one of my main beefs with music now is I think it's become I think people ha- regard music differently now. It's more disposable, I think. They they, they kind of get into background. something. Yeah, they get into something for a while, but they don't shout from the rooftops and they certainly don't really love a band. They might like a song for a while, but they move on, you know, Um and it, it, music has become more disposable and less regarded and it's kind of ubiquitous. It's everywhere and it's up on streaming services for 0.003 cent a play or whatever. And it's just, I, I think it's changed an awful lot. And it's a kind of a shame really because people value it less, you know. Uh, just generally speaking, they're far more casual about it and it means less, you know. Do you think you're more casual about it as well as as a listener? I mean, maybe you're not listening the same as say I, I would listen uh, to No, I, I, st- I still listen to music I'm definitely an album person I listen listen to if I like an artist I go and listen to the album Um, I want to understand what they were doing the track order the rise and fall of it Um, I think my favourite artist at the moment at the moment I keep on going back to him is this guy called Rival Consoles I don't know if you've ever heard of him yeah, rival. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's like he, late nineties, is it UK? Um, no, 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 no. He's, he's quite current. Uh, oh. he's, he's on a raised tapes, same label oh, okay. as Nils Fram. You know that guy. Um, but and he released an album just a few months ago called Now Is. Um, but my favorite record of his um, was two thousand and eighteen. What's it called? Um, but uh, I'll, I'll think of it in a while. I've got a terrible short term memory. But. Um, yeah, yeah, like I, I love his music, and you, you know, I, I still listen to a lot of new music all the time, and I like to be, enth- I like to get enthusiastic about new music as much as possible. But um, it's just a matter of finding the time. <laughs> and so, tell me how you go from that punk scene in the mid to late '90s, selling five thousand copies. When you said that, I was like, ka-ching, you know, catching bands can only yeah. dream of that now, you know. I but know. what what happens yeah. next? Is it? I mean, in my head, I'm like. Damien Rice arrives and acoustic music just takes over. Is 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 that right? Or? Yeah, I mean the arc of music is quite strange, isn't it? Like, I mean, like I think one of the biggest pivotal moments for me was around two thousand and one or two, I think, or maybe a bit later. But everyone was like listening to electronic music and dance music at that point, oh, and okay. then then the Strokes came along, and then ev- suddenly everyone was listening to the Strokes, and they were into so even in Dublin band rock you know and like yeah that happens like that like culture changes and it moves on and like i'm older now like i'm i'm in my early 50s so like i mean i'm not necessarily interested in keeping up with like cultural changes i just continue to do what mm. i do um, and i'm of course i'm interested in what others are doing but uh, after a while you decide to kind of play your own for i mean a, a lot of people i know who made music in in my younger years most of them have definitely quit they just don't do it at all anymore and then others do it very casually. I think I'm one of the only people I know who's actually working in music, you know, soundtrack composition. And I'm the only one I know who's kind of working in music and also one of the only people I know who's releasing records. Um, but I'm not I'm not doing it for any other reason than I just really love doing it. Do you know? Um, I'm not doing it for any kind of success or, you know, I, I think, as I said earlier, um, if nobody was listening, I'd be doing it anyway. 
Um, that's I just know that. Yeah, is that is that something you've developed? Do you think? I mean, I'm guessing when you're younger and brasher, you are kind of more like I want to be the f- biggest band in the world. Yeah, yeah. I suppose a little bit. I think uh, as people around me, I mean, I, I've had lots of kind of uh, moments in my life where I've I've really really felt like what I was doing was very important. But right now, what I feel like I'm doing is it's important to me to do it. Do, do you know? So, um, like. If if I'm, I mean, I don't really know uh, what bored is. If like if I if I feel like I want to do something, I just do it. You know, I just I don't sit around and go, God, I'm really bored now. I come out and make music, you know, and then I'm not bored. And so I just do it to to kind of fill up my my time and space. So like I said, if I wasn't even releasing it, I'd, I would be doing it anyway. It's very nice to be able to release and put things into the world. Yeah, I do enjoy that. It's nerve wracking but enjoyable. The the people that you're still friends with now, who say you used to that they used to be making music or you used to be making music with them, do you get a sense of, like, they wish they were still doing it, but they just don't have maybe the, the time, the resources, the, yeah. the capabilities anymore? Do you get a sense of r- longing? Yeah, I, I do from, from most of them. I think most of the time it is resources. Like, you know, they, like it's very simple. Like, nobody is making uh, money from music now or a decent, and certainly not a living. So they have to make a tough choice, you know. Um, at somewhere in the journey and sort of go well you know I love doing this um, but but they have families and yeah I have a family or I have yeah. a mortgage or whatever so I have to kind of focus on my job and there is a feeling of regret a lot of the time from many of the people doing it and that's it's kind of sad and that's another cause of the internet as well in some ways because you know like even the people who are making something of value and are getting recognition for it are not making money from it um, so that's that's a bit of a shame but there's, there's I know so many people like that so many yeah it's interesting just thinking about like say the younger acts who are coming through you know releasing their debut albums or their second albums or something and yeah. you know sometimes you you can get a sense that they really just want you know a song on a Spotify playlist or something yeah, just some bit yeah. of money coming in and, and just some modicum of success and I wonder like does it come earlier to them that like oh, what's the point of sticking with the music almost you know yeah even, no, even though saying that I do know acts who are releasing you know five or six albums into their career they've been making music and you know for 15 yeah, years that, well. that's another thing that's kind of disappeared as well isn't it longevity like of, of an act they just kind of pop up release something a couple of tunes or an album and then they just seem to disappear or become less relevant and just slowly evaporate that's like a, a, the kind of longevity of careers is something that's kind of disappeared over the years and that used to happen a lot you know but I mean, I, 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 in terms of kind of making money from music, I have kind of firsthand experience of releasing something on Spotify that would have close to a million plays um, with Mount Alaska. And I do, I can tell you firsthand that uh, there is no money in that at all. Like there's like a couple of hundred quid. It sounds impressive, but. It, 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 like it looks great and you can say to people, and it, uh, like I mean, but it, it financially it means nothing. Like mm-hmm. there is nothing there. Man. I don't know how many plays you'd have to get before you get anything significant, but I think I read somewhere that Daft Punk. Remember that song "Get Lucky"? I think oh they yeah, made, yeah. It's uh, f- uh, is it ten years since that album came out? Yeah, I think they Random made Max nine grand from it or something. <laughs> it's end of the summer. It, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like the biggest hit of that year. Um, I, I read that somewhere, but nine thousand quid. Just going back to say the the early noughties, then that idea of um, you know some music just kind of doesn't survive the inter- you know I was just looking up say half set I, w- I think you have the album that was nominated for the choices up on Spotify oh, but I don't I don't Great. think on- <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> you might be getting a lo- uh, loyalty check for, oh, yeah, for sure yeah, t- thousands like <laughs> yeah sure <laughs> 
And there's other stuff that you made with Half Set that isn't up on the internet at all, I don't think. Yeah, I think the first album we made, we, like, it was a kind of a different lineup then. It was just three of us, and we, we, we were just, we, when we played live, we just kind of had, like, a bunch of synths. We just, we just kind of swapped around and did the best we could, and we made it the first album. Actually, I talked to one of the guys from that band, and we were trying to figure out should we just put it up online, even on Bandcamp or something, just to have it there, and um, just so people can have it and listen to it or whatever they want to do. Um, but you know, I'm very proud of everything I've done. It wasn't a conscious decision not to put it up there. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, it just didn't happen. Yeah, during the transition from uh, real world to internet. <laughs> yeah, but but when the when the Strokes come along with their guitars, you've already got your uh, your synthesizer yeah. in 1999. So you're like, no, 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 not for me. Is, yeah. that, is that how it works? I, I think, the, I think, I think the, there starts? comes a point where you have to kind of go. I'm not chasing culture anymore. I'm just going to do what I do. You know, you, you do have to make that, that. There's a bridge there. You know, I think that was about that time for me. I was just like, no, I'm, I'm really happy with what I'm doing here. And and so like the stuff that you're making now, do you trace that back to like? buying that first synthesizer and say the, the start of half set as well maybe very much so but I mean I, I I I was thinking about it there recently and it's interesting you asked but I think I can trace my love of synthesis and synthesized down back to when I was a kid like in, in the late 80s and early 90s and just hearing like you know 80s synth pop you know like on the radio and on top of the pops that was the only music show on TV at the time and just hearing bands like Aha and Depeche Mode and I don't know, New Order and like and Eurythmics, like stuff like that. And you just kind of hear this kind of... And at the time, I had no idea how the sounds were made. But I, but I, I, I can trace it back to then, I think. Like I, when I hear those sounds now, I, I can just hear a clear line to how that was going into my mind as a child. Mm. Um, but, I, but I mean, I suppose musically, once I, once I actually played, like I said, once I actually played a synthesizer, it just kind of drew me in in a way that nothing has ever done since, you know. And like, are you proud of the stuff that you made with Half Set and with Strands and stuff? I mean, Half Set had an album nominated for The Choice. That was the year that uh, Jape won for Ritual, his first remember choice that, for yeah. yeah, and Fair Play to Jape. He's a lovely lad. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's got his own studio in Sweden yeah. now and is making music over there and making making um, uh, scores as well. And, yeah, and I, 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 um, like I bought his last album on Bandcamp. It's brilliant. Like, it's, it's kind of like... A, it's, he's he's great anyway. I just love what he does. But um, yeah, I'm very proud of everything I've done over the years. And like I, I, I've everything I've done, I've always done to the best of my ability based on what I loved at that time. And uh, when I listen back to any of it, I can, I, I, like I said, I don't really know the process of how I made each thing because you, you kind of forget the details, mm. which is a good thing because it's almost like uh, when you have a young kid, you don't you don't remember every nappy you change. <laughs> you just kind of put it away as a child gets older. You kind of, you're relieved, you know. But I, I just, uh, I, I'm yeah, I'm very proud of everything I've done for sure. Let's talk a little bit more about Mount Alaska. Who you've is it one album that you've done or two? Uh, we did an album and a couple of EPs. Couple of EPs um, yeah. yeah, it was me and my pal Killian, who was the drummer in Half Set. Yeah, yeah. How did that develop? And are you working on stuff at the at the moment? Um, it's kind of parked for now, but uh, it, it, it's like it, it kind of it kind of developed out of the friendship that we had, and we kind of started working together in two thousand eleven and. Um, uh, we, we just decided to start releasing music under a new name together. Um, it was kind of post half set, I suppose. Yeah, we worked really, really hard on a lot of the music we released. We're like, I think for everything we released, there's probably 30 things we didn't. You know, we just really worked hard on the music. And um, I kind of, for me, I think I, I really enjoy working alone uh, on music. So I just wanted to kind of park that for a while and develop something on my own. And plus, I, like I said earlier, I don't really have the time at the moment either. So. I'm happy to, to kind of leave that to one side for a while. 
in the future maybe you know and when it is the two of you working is it is it the same kind of creative process for you as you're looking at your bank of music on online and try, or on the computer and trying to incorporate that or is it working in the room together on it's, new it, sounds it, it, it was a collaborative thing so we we'd, we would have developed things together and you know um, I, it was quite arduous at times it took time especially with the pandemic because obviously we couldn't be in the same room a lot of the time so we kind of worked over Zoom and tried to collaborate with a kind of online software and stuff like that and that was difficult and we, we put out an EP during the pandemic but you can hear it's much quieter oh okay and, you know so you can you can hear there's just like there's less happening it's just kind of it's more more earnest you know it's because it's more difficult and maybe that kind of led led me to the point where I kind of wanted to work on my own because I mean I don't have to collaborate with anybody I'm just here I just kind of I can work very quickly and so maybe that's why I enjoy working on my own right now what are you working on next is it is it just the scoring uh yeah I, I i have to finish i'm working on a crime drama at the moment for a uk tv channel and that'll be finished in a couple of weeks and then i'm moving on to another crime drama and I'm, i've pitched for a film which i'm hoping to get it's quite a large project so uh, that's another part another facet of my work uh, pitching it's a it's like a you, you get a couple of sometimes you get a couple of scenes from something they're filming or working on or have kind of edited and you have to submit something you'd like to do for the film, but any amount of other composers do too. And nine times out of ten, you don't get something because somebody else has kind of nailed it a bit better than you or they've kind of, the, the director might like it more. So a lot of the time, you can, it's like rolling the dice, you know. Um, not not quite nine times out of ten because, you de- I mean, I've developed a few relationships with directors over the years, but uh, it is it is part of it. You have to kind of put things aside and spend a day, sometimes maybe two days, really making something work and with the knowledge that it may not get accepted, you know. Um, so when you pitch for something, you, you really don't know. But you hang on to the music, I'm guessing, and you... Yeah, yeah, you do. Yeah, I mean, a lot of things get recycled, especially if you spend time on it, um, you know. And like I said earlier, if it comes from the same creative space, there, there, there will always be similarities and something will fit somewhere else. When you're working on the crime dramas, when you're working on the horror films, is it easy to be like, you know, go into the cliches or anything like that? Is it easy to avoid them? Yeah, I I really try hard to yeah. avoid cliches. So like, but I'm guessing sometimes they want them. As yeah. Well. well, there's there's a couple of things that you might call cliches, like um, like the what's called the the riser. You know, like when something something really scary is going to happen, and you kind of preempt it a little bit with music, and so you, you, know, you kind of rise something yeah. to a point, and then the big booms. You know, the kind of the boom for something major happening, and those things sometimes are unavoidable. When a director wants something like that, you normally have to answer and just give them something like that, but most of the time I try to avoid that as much as I can, you know, um, and just try and maybe nail it on the second draft if they really want it. Yeah. But uh, just try and come up with something else that would work better, in my opinion, or is less obvious. Great. Well, I enjoyed uh, getting a small education anyway <laughs> in film scoring. I like, I'd i like to hear to more you. about it sometime. Um, but best luck with the show at Thank the you. NCH this weekend. I'm presuming that you've played there before, have you? Uh, yeah, in the main room, I, like me and a friend, Matthew Nolan, there's an old film called Night of the Living Dead from 1969 and on the 50th anniversary, uh, we did a show in the main hall Wow, um, yeah. where we kind of redid the score for it. But I've never played it. I think this, this, this room is the studio, which is a smaller venue as part of it. So I haven't played in there before. When you're doing the live film scores, then is it note for note of the original? No, it's not. But that's really interesting because George Romero, who has sadly passed away, um, we were hoping to have him for the show, but he passed away. Um, 
he when he made the music he made or when he made that film he did it on such a low budget I think he made it for five thousand dollars or something like that and when he got to the end of the film he didn't have any music he'd almost completely finished it and edited and he was like oh yeah so we need a composer we need music and but one of the cast members was a uh, working in or, or owned a library music company and they just kind of threw the music in and he went on the record to say that you know he didn't like the music it just it was just kind of an afterthought it was just put in there so when you listen to the music now like or when you watch the film um, it's in black and white and the music sounds really old and it looks really old and it looks the film looks 20 years older as a result you know um, but it was all kind of budget. It's, it's a wonderful film I love it but it was all kind of budgetary compromises so we just um there was new software in, the, in development. It's, it's gotten better now, but um, we were able to kind of take out the old soundtrack and just kind of leave in the dialogue and we kind of worked with the sound effects, the Foley and stuff like that and put in brand new music, you know, and uh, performed it live. Wow, amazing. Do you have any more of those coming up? Or uh, we, uh, Me and my friend Matthew Nolan, he, um, he's a guy I kind of work with on a lot of that stuff. Um, we did a... A new soundtrack for a film called Solaris from 1972, Andrzej Tarkovsky, and that was debuted at the New York Film Festival last year, and we played it in the Sound Festival in Letterkenny a couple of weeks ago, and that's 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 another brand new score that we perform live. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's I love it. It's a great challenge. I really wow. enjoy it. Amazing, yeah. great. Uh, well, thanks for chatting, and best of luck with the show. Thank you very much. Thanks, Owen. <laughs>